It's great to be with you. Oh, now I have amplification. It's great to be with you, and I um, want to just say that I felt very warmly welcomed on your campus. And actually, before I came to your campus, uh, you've got some great folks who handle some of the external communication and clear emailing and coordinating back and forth and uh, arriving very late last night uh, with a little bit of a delay with um, the United Airlines folks. Um, Larissa, is Larissa in the room somewhere? Um, well, no, of course not, because she was at the airport at 1.30 this morning meeting me. And so, um, so anyway, I just have, have experienced your generosity and your um, openness uh, before I got here and then having come. And then to spend a little bit of time this morning before class, getting to meet some of the staff and beginning to interact with students in the hall, in the classroom, you've clearly got a very warm and inclusive community here. Uh, you like each other and uh, you like the things that you're able to do and enjoy together. And I just feel as I come in that I am among kindred spirits in so doing. So I can bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Moody Bible Institute in a land far, far away in a city of very, very tall buildings. But we have the cold in common. So um, it is um, a, a great privilege to be with you. I've never been in Montana before 1.30 this morning. Uh, so um, just you all live in a beautiful and an amazing place. And um, just uh, wish that my wife could have been with me to um, enjoy it. But um, at least to this point, I've been told that nothing that I've done has eliminated the possibility of coming back. <laughs> So it, it might happen that, um, that Denise is able to come, uh, to come with me. Is Blake Shaw in the room? Again, y'all are, so, um, so Blake, y'all know Blake, right? Um, is a classmate of mine and my wife from like way back in the 80s at Moody Bible Institute. And so, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm not offended, but you know, I told him I was gonna be here. So, you know, may, may, you know, make of that what you will. No, no, no doubt he's, um, he's, he's doing something um, pretty important. So um, I did um, request permission. When, when, when our um, admissions folks heard I was coming, they said, take stuff. And so, um, so I've got some stuff. Um, so you can see me afterwards if you're interested in any of, of Moody's graduate programs, right? I'm not doing any undergraduate recruiting. That would be like terribly bad taste. But um, in terms of um, some of our graduate programs, I, I do have some uh, literature that I'll leave here and y'all might be interested in some of those things, either um, in residence in Chicago um, or in some of our online programs with our, our Master of Divinity or our um, Master's in Bible. We have a Master's in um, Clinical Mental Health Counseling that some of you involved in um, your counseling program might be interested in. I'm personally pretty excited in a new program we've, we've released re recently called a Master of Arts in Global Ministry Design, which is, um, we're not really branding it quite this way, but something like a ministry MBA, which is to say that it's, it's focused on the dynamics of leading and shaping ministry organizations and what's involved in some of those kinds of things. And so a biblical and theological core combined with some of the practical leadership qualities that um, present ministry challenges have. So anyway, got some fancy blue folders that you can store all kinds of cool stuff in. Um, I'm not sure where to find those, but I'm sure you will know where to find them as to um, who will see them. But what I did want to do today, now I need to orient myself to the clock and see that so I can see it now. I know where, hopefully it won't come up again. 
before we're done. Uh, what I did want to do today was spend some time with you in the Word of God, and in particular in a part of the scriptures that are near and dear to my own heart and actually to my feet and hands as well, because I want us to spend some time thinking through Paul's second missionary journey. Those of you who are in my philosophy class have seen a number of my dorky videos of me standing on site in a variety of places through Greece and Turkey. And so I want to uh, give you something of a, of a um, tour of some of these places, but more significantly, the scriptural text that uh, God lays out for us in Acts 16, 17, and 18. And if we wanted to just put a, a key idea out there for us, it would be this. My hope is that today, as we think about God's word, that you'll agree not to settle for good dreams. And what we'll see in the life of Paul in this passage is that he's got some good dreams, but his dreams don't align with God's goals and dreams. And imagine how tragically different the world and the church, and the church would be today if Paul had settled for his dreams instead of being faithful to the call that God laid before him. So if you're able to look at the text here, I'm going to start looking in chapter 16 in just a minute, but we might want to frame it by a moment of your own reflection as to some of those good dreams that you're currently setting before you. And I think you should have dreams and plans and goals. And so don't walk away from this thinking that I'm, I'm telling you to just stop imagining and pursuing and considering these things. But there have been any number of times in my life when I've had my life completely figured out, right? I mean, I knew which girl I should marry. Just so you know, I didn't, right? I uh, knew which house on more than one occasion was the perfect house for us. And sometimes we've ended up with those houses and sometimes we haven't. There have been times when I knew which job I, I was supposed to get. I went to that really specifically in the last couple of years. Um, Y'all don't know me from Adam except I've got the belly button. Um, so um, you don't know much about me or my background or my history except, you know, I know Blake Shaw from way back when. And um, I've uh, been able to engage some of you through philosophy, but uh, I'm a Moody graduate and pastored for 13 years in Indianapolis um, before God kind of redirected, called us into an academic kind of ministry. And some other time, maybe we can talk about that pathway, but it involved um, heading off to Purdue for a master's and eventually a PhD in philosophy and imagining that that's just how God was gonna use us, that I would be teaching at some school in probably a secular context, um, involved in the church, having students over for barbecues and trying to be faithful disciple-making in the context of that kind of um, educational role. Had no intent or expectation that God would bring me back to Moody and that, uh, that the, the kind of discipling that I would be doing would be actually an indirect way of discipling or discipling those who would disciple others as uh, I would be equipping students to, to go and do the kind of ministry that, that we thought we would do. So came to Moody about 16 years ago and as Ryan said, teaching things like philosophy and ethics and apologetics and logic and all those kinds of things that um, folks like me think are really interesting and relevant 
to the life and the ministry of the church. And along the ways, uh, got involved in a few other things and kind of was on a, a trajectory there, served as the dean of the faculty at Moody for about six years. And then the position of dean of the undergraduate school became available. And, you know, talk about grooming. I had been like set up for that job, right? I mean, I was a graduate. I'd been in the school for 14 years. I had worked with all the faculty. I knew all the programs. I was pretty clearly the ideal candidate for that position. Um, and it was obvious to almost everybody except our board that that was the case. And, uh, and they decided to hire somebody else um, as the dean of our undergraduate school, which was, which, you know, even at this stage of my life, um, you don't stop learning stuff along the way. And, you know, I found out that, you know, there were things I was holding on to pretty tightly that, um, that maybe I needed yet to learn again lessons about notting, not holding um, so tightly too. No, clearly it, it worked out for us because um, the fellow that they put in the role as the dean of the undergraduate school had been the dean of the online school, so that position was suddenly available, and um, they offered that to me. And so I moved into that role, and um, maybe I'll say a little bit more about that before we're done today, but uh, that little snippet of my own life tracks a bit with some of the things I think that we see in Paul's life here, and maybe in some of the ways it might be tracking with some of the things from your life as well. We're not going to read through three chapters of the book of Acts today, right? Um, a couple of um, verses at the beginning of this account, and a couple at the end, and then some high flyover work in between. But in chapter 16 of Acts, uh, Paul now and Silas, as they're setting out on the second missionary journey, we'll remember uh, the the, the um, breakup with um, Barnabas, and now it's Paul and Silas as they're um, off on um, this account, returning through some of the cities that they had visited on the first missionary journey. He came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and there was a certain disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father was a Greek. Uh, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Um, Paul wanted him to come with them, so he takes Timothy. Um, and we see in verse 5, the churches were being strengthened in faith and increasing in number daily. In other words, Paul is experiencing success in ministry. Things are going according to his plan, right? He's been through this region before. He's met with these churches. He's been effective as an evangelist. He's circling back through. He's getting all the right strokes. He's being encouraged. He's building his team. Everything's going great, and the churches are growing. All the evidence is there that God is blessing the ministry that Paul is about. And, you know, through the key ways that we quantify these things, right? They're growing in number. They're strengthened in the faith. Um, so all the outward signs of successful ministry are here for Paul. And he's got a plan. They passed through the Fergian and Galatian reason, region. Then we come to this really weird sentence. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now this ought to strike you as a bit odd for an effective missionary like the Apostle Paul who has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, 
And Paul is faithful in the work, and he's got a good track record of effective ministry in these towns of Derby and Iconium, and all in this area of what today is southeastern Turkey, where the gospel is beginning to reach beyond its initial Judean sort of geography. We're seeing this introduction of the gospel to the ends of the earth, and Paul's got a plan. He wants to preach the gospel in Asia. Now, Asia isn't China and Japan in the New Testament. Asia is basically Turkey, and more specifically, it's Western Turkey. So it's that, that far Western portion of Turkey where Ephesus is the major city. So what Paul really wants to do is go to Ephesus. Ephesus is a huge city. It's one of the most important cities in Paul's world. Uh, as Paul sat there in Antioch and imagined the ends of the earth, where might he go, he can imagine the edge of this landmass on which he lives at the very far extreme. There is this huge city there called Ephesus. And it would be the high watermark of an evangelist's career if he could get to Ephesus to preach the gospel. And there is this sense that he is eager to do so and constantly trying, and they're running up against walls. We're not told how these things happen, but the Spirit of God has somehow forbidden Paul from preaching the word in Asia or in Ephesus. And it doesn't sound like this was some kind of dream or vision where God appears to him and says, Paul, you can't go to Ephesus. It doesn't seem like that's what's going on because it seems like Paul is still trying to go to Ephesus, right? So it's not like he is violating a direct command. It seems instead that life's circumstances are continuing to conspire against him somehow, and he's not able to get to Ephesus like he wants to. You might have maps in the back of your Bible that lay out all these different regions. And so what appears to be happening here is because of, who knows, um, weather or roving bandits or um, caravans of travelers who are going in this direction or not that direction. For whatever reason, Paul can't get this overland route to Ephesus, and instead it seems that he's getting shunted northward through these other regions that are mentioned here. And so we see the Fergian and the Galatian region. Now, we'll note later on that some of these things really do work out pretty well, because later on, for example, Paul will write a letter to the Galatians, right? So even though he's not getting what he wants, he is still active in the work while he is being shunted away from it. And people are coming to Christ through his ministry, including this Galatian church that we meet um, later on. Forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, so maybe Paul's got a different plan. All right, we're going to sneak in like through the back door. We'll come in from another way. And so in the next verse, when they came to Mysia, again, one of these regions in what we think of today as northern Turkey. This is Mysia and Bithynia, um, where the Nicaea is and, and some of these places. Uh, and when they'd come to Messiah, they were trying to get into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So we have this, this stronger emphasis. We've got the spirit of God didn't let them. Now we've got the spirit of Jesus doesn't let them. And so they end up traveling continually westward over land until they come to Troas. In verse 8, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So now they're, they're kind of stuck against the shore. I mean, they're literally, if you someday you have the opportunity 
to visit that part of the world, I, I would hope that you can. And when I was walking in the halls, I saw that the church uh, has a trip planned through the Aegean area next August. Um, and uh, so uh, on that trip or some other trip, maybe someday, you'll have the opportunity to visit some of the sites that you read in the text. And I'm hopeful that you will. But when, when you are in these places, you'll realize how tantalizingly frustrating it must have been for Paul to be so close to where he wants to be. Desperate to get to Ephesus. It's just 100 miles south of him. So close you can almost taste it. And yet he can't get there. Stuck. Dead end. Troas. But you know the story, so you know that Paul really shouldn't be as upset as maybe he is here. Um, but a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought him to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, this is where we'll really pick up the pace as we think about the text here, but this is Paul's famous Macedonian vision. His vision of what it was to serve God seemed to be limited then to this continent or this subcontinent of what we call Asia. His goal, the high water mark that he imagined is, maybe someday I can get to Ephesus. Maybe someday I can preach the gospel in Ephesus. And when he gets to this point, when he comes to Troas, what he's called to do now is to expand that horizon, to go skip Ephesus, instead to go into Macedonia or the region that today we think of as Greece. And so what do we see in the text? And you know the story, right? Immediately they set out. They go to Neapolis, and from there they walk about a day's journey to Philippi. And what happens in Philippi? He meets Lydia, and there's the first convert on the European continent. He walks through the Agora in Philippi and casts a demon out of a slave girl who's offering prophecy. He is uh, brought before the magistrates, beaten with rods, thrown in the Philippian jail, uh, singing hymns in the middle of the night. The earthquake comes and releases him. He sees the, he's able to preach the gospel to the jailer, and the jailer and his whole family are converted and come to Christ and invite Paul into his home. He gets run out of town the next day by the Philippian magistrates after her sort of you know flashing his Roman citizen card. How dare you do this to me? And heads on down the road to Thessaloniki where again there's another riot and up, uprising as now in this case the Jews in Thessaloniki object to the preaching of the gospel and he gets chased out of there as well on to Berea, where the Jews there are more noble, and they consider the scriptures and evaluate these things to find out whether or not they're true. And they, they also come to faith, and others join them, including some of the Greeks. And, uh, but the Thessalonian Jews uh, find out about this, and they send some others in to stir up the trouble again. So Paul gets spirited out again and gets, you know, runs down to Athens on his own. And in Athens, he's able to walk in the places where class... Socrates and Plato and Aristotle across the same agora where um, these great philosophers had taught. Paul is in the marketplace of Athens debating the descendants of those philosophers as he engages the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers of Athens. And eventually he makes a big enough impression that they drag him up onto Mars Hill. And we have there Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill where he's able to boldly proclaim the word of God in a context and sort of the, the high watermark of intellectual paganism where the gospel confronts these things. And from there he goes to Corinth. And what we find out is that Paul spends now a year and a half in Corinth and has this dramatic and extensive 
ministry in Corinth. Corinth was a city just as important as Ephesus. Corinth was a city just as significant in terms of the Roman governmental structure and the way that they managed the world as Ephesus had been. Again, these are major Roman centers. Paul ends up in a place he never intended to be. And what he finds there is that God is there ahead of him. Again, he encounters resistance. This is where he meets Priscilla and Aquila and is ministered to by working alongside them in their tent-making industry. But eventually, the rest of his team catches up and they're able to take up the material support so Paul can dedicate himself to preaching. This is where Paul commits himself to a ministry to the Gentiles when the, 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 the Jews of, of Corinth um, generally reject him. And he says, all right, from now on, I'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And there's this amazing affirmation of his ministry. In the moment of this challenge and uncertainty and discouragement, God appears to him and says, don't be afraid, Paul. No harm is going to come to you here because I've got many people in this city. Right? I mean, those are like magic words for an evangelist. If God says, I am already active here, you be active in the work that I've called you to do. And we see this dramatic ministry in Corinth, which is really the climax of Paul's missionary work, as we see this progress of the gospel to nearly to the ends of the earth, right? I mean, there's only a couple places beyond this, you know, later on to Rome and maybe later on to Spain. But the, the horizons of Paul's ministry have turned out to extend so far beyond the places he thought he might have gone and the things he thought he might have done if he'd have had his way, if he'd had his dreams come true of being able to maybe someday make it to Ephesus. It's interesting because if we look at um, Acts 18, where we see the um, second missionary journey kind of winding down. So in verse um, 19 of chapter 18, I'll back up to verse 18. When Paul's getting ready to leave Corinth, uh, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila in Chantria. That's one of the ports of Corinth. Uh, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow, right? So he's leaving Corinth now. Um, verse 19. And they came to Ephesus. You see, I mean, you, you see it, this in the text? I mean, remember how big a deal this was way back Two chapters ago, Paul's desperate to get to Ephesus. The Spirit of God is preventing him from going to Ephesus. The Spirit of Jesus won't let him go to Ephesus. You can kind of get the frustration, the frustration that you felt when it's not that you want to do a bad thing. You want to do a good thing and you can't do it. Again, whether it's the girl or the house or the job or the whatever it is. And Paul was consistently frustrated in his deepest desires. And instead, what happens to him? That whole whirlwind tour that we just saw of ministry through Philippi and Thessaloniki and Berea and Athens and Corinth and all these amazing Bible stories that you've known your whole life since you were little kids perhaps, all that stuff happens because Paul doesn't get what he wants. And then at the end of that time, when they're like on his way back to Jerusalem, I mean, it's like they stop for gas. It's like, yeah, and they were heading for Syria and so they went to Ephesus. I mean, that would have been the climax of Paul's dreams. It's an afterthought 
at this point, right? Uh, interesting things happen here. Um, they came to Ephesus, and he left them, that is Priscilla and Aquila there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Um, this is Paul's regular pattern, right? As he goes into a town, even though he says that his ministry is to the Gentiles, he consistently demonstrates this, that when there is a synagogue, he starts in the synagogue, he opens the scriptures, he preaches the gospel of Jesus, and he finds out whether or not they're gonna be receptive to it. And in some cases, like Thessaloniki, they're not. In some places, like Berea, they are. But he consistently starts there. So he goes into the synagogue of the Jews. He reasons with them. And what's the response? They ask him to stay. Again, all of his dreams have finally come true. This is fantastic, Paul. We want to hear about that. They ask him to stay. He did not consent, taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again. If God wills, he sets sail from Ephesus. You see the change in Paul over the course of this couple of years of this missionary journey? When he started out, he had, he had imagined what, how great it might be to serve God faithfully. And he had constructed a whole shape of, of all of his dreams coming true. And because he was faithful at a number of places along the way. And because he was moving, because he was active, because he was continuing to, to seek God. I mean, he didn't quit in Turkey because he couldn't get to Asia. He said, well, if I can't do this, I'm going to do this. Right? I'm going to continue to. Okay. Because he responds to the Macedonian vision. He has this amazing ministry that follows. And Ephesus is still there. And Ephesus is even still there for Paul, right? He eventually gets to Ephesus, ironically from the other direction, right? He comes in from the west instead of walking in from the east. And it's everything he hoped it would be. It's a huge city. It's this massive uh, center of Roman government. The Jews are receptive. They beg to hear more. There's nothing a teacher likes like, oh, does class have to end already? Can't we ignore that? Can't we just stay for a little bit longer? It's everything he hopes it is. And... They beg him to stay, and he says, i got to go, right? I've got other obligations. I've got to go report to my home church. I've got to get to Jerusalem. Uh, you know what? Maybe, if God wills, I'll come back, right? Paul's been dramatically changed by this. Um, a few things I want us to just think about here as we wrap things up, because I think there's some things that, I think that there are some ways that, that we could make some mistaken applications of this text. We might think that what's going on here is that, um, that God is promising something better, right? If you obey him, he'll give you something better than what you hoped. I got to tell you, during some parts of that journey, it did not feel better to Paul, right? Getting beaten with rods until you're bloodied and bruised doesn't feel like something better, right? Being thrown in jail doesn't feel like something better. Being chased out of town on multiple occasions doesn't feel like something better. Being drugged before the Bema seat in Corinth doesn't feel like something better. You shouldn't spiritualize this, that you know, following God means that life is going to be more comfortable and happier and better just because I'm following him. It might, in fact, be harder than what we imagined ourselves. Neither should we imagine that there's some kind of let's make a deal going on here where we say to God something like, okay, we'll do it your way, but you've got to pay off, 
right? You've got to reciprocate by giving me what I want also, right? So, so don't take from this that you've got some sort of dream that you've set as your own goal and God's not letting you have it. So you're going to obey God, but there's like this back of your mind guarantee that he's going to bring you back to Ephesus because he might not, right? You might not get that which you're trying to trade with God. In Paul's particular case, he does manage to make it back to Ephesus. But I'm reminded of the account of um, Jesus commissioning Peter and talking about, you know, Peter one day being led where he doesn't want to go and being tied and, you know, having a, a difficult call in front of him. And Peter turning and looking at John and saying, well, you know, what about him? Right? And Jesus' response to Peter was, John's none of your business. Right? You know, what's important is that you're, you're faithful to what I call you to. Maybe I want John to live until I come back. Right? That doesn't have anything to do with you. So you don't get to like make deals with God and say, make sure you give me what I want as long as I do what you want. But here's what I think we should take from this. That sincerely and genuinely following God will change and shape your desires to where in fact we do end up realizing the deepest desires of our heart. Right? Paul was maybe in danger of making an idol of ministry in Ephesus. Um, and so it, it might have been a bad idea for him to go um, lest he have the opportunity to worship that idol. But once his vision and goals and experience were shaped by God's work in his life through the rest of this, then he could go to Ephesus in safety without this experience of idolatry and understand that this too was by the hand and the mercy and the grace of God. And you know the rest of the story, right? I mean, Paul says, if God wills, I'll come back. Well, you know what? God did will, and he did come back. And he was there for a couple of years, and his ministry there was so powerful that the accusation against him was that these people are turning the world upside down. And everybody in Asia has heard the gospel because of what Paul is saying and doing. And so in this case, we've got this account of God's faithfulness um, to Paul um, beyond even, I think, what Paul might have imagined. But as we consider our own particular cases, first of all, we want to be encouraged by the text that God is active in the work of those who he calls to his service, and he's active in equipping them for those things that they need to do. And he even goes before us. I mean, I love that line in Corinth that there's many, I've got many people in this city, you know, just go find them, right, and um, preach the gospel. That God shapes our desires um, and teaches us to let go of these things which would, could become corrupting idols to us. I'm reminded of the, that closing line of the hymn that says that um, the things of the earth grow strangely dim in light of God's glory and grace. And so as we commit ourselves to God's faithful service, um, we discover that we shouldn't be settling for good dreams. And instead, we ought to be continuing to reach and aspire to these great dreams that God has for us. Let me pray for you. Lord, we're encouraged by your word that you're faithful to your people and faithful to your own word and faithful to your intentions for this world. We know it is your intent to build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that you choose to use human instruments like the men and women in this room to preach your gospel and to serve the church and to show love to this world and to faithfully reveal your character, your nature, your word,
uh, in the places that you lead us and empower us for. I thank you for these men and women, their desire to serve you, the, uh, the leading to this point to come into a season of study and preparation, uh, to be active about the work, even as you continue to define the details of the place and the time. We pray for clarity as you lead and for confidence as you empower. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.